This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mullinger Meets Canadians is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Today I'm in Newfoundland and Labrador to meet the queen of Canadian comedy herself, Mary Walsh. Best known as a co-creator and star of one of Canada's most successful and longest-running TV series ever, this hour at 22 minutes, famously filmed in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She has had a decades-long career as a comedian and actress, a best-selling author, director, and passionate advocate for mental health awareness, human rights, LGBTQ rights, and eradicating poverty. She's won every award going, including an incredible 18 Gemini Awards, a Governor General's Performing Arts Award, and she's also a recipient of the Order of Canada. In short, she's pretty amazing. I'm meeting Mary today at her home in St. John's to discuss the secret to great comedy, her advocacy work, and how she overcame a, a difficult childhood and struggles with alcoholism in her early years to become one of the funniest and most important voices in the country. As a relative newcomer to this region, I'm also excited to learn how she stayed at the top of her game for over three decades and what it is that drives her to keep creating comedic gold while also lending her voice to causes that mean so much to her. Here we go. Mary! Hey, James, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Sit down. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> it is so lovely to see you. And nice to see you too. Um, and I have to say, I'd like to start by saying that I'm extremely honoured to be sat here with the Queen of Canadian Comedy. Oh. This is a big moment for me. Yeah. Uh, that, that must add a bit of stress to your life, having that title all of the time. No, it doesn't actually, because uh, so few people ever say it. But thank you for saying it, James, <laughs> and it means a lot to me. Uh, no, it's not, uh, you know, unless they do... Uh, do you think they might do a series called The Crown about the Queen of Canadian Comedy? That's that would be good. Uh, no, no, no. You know, and, and I've been here since March, yeah. and we're, you know, as with most of us. So we're all jarred up by ourselves, kind of, you know, and... Um, uh, I'm writing a lot, but I haven't gotten to perform very much because usually I'm on the road performing, right? Yes. And when I write, like I'm writing another book, I don't know. Like people, like HarperCollins sold the book as a comedy, yeah. and it wasn't really that comedic, even not even dark comedy really that much. There were funny things in it. Yeah. So I don't know where I am with the book. It sort of seems funny to me. Yeah. And, of course, that's all you ever have to go on anyway, isn't it? I mean, I remember in the old days in Codco, we used to write something and then we rehearse it and we rehearse it and then we go, this is not funny. And then we go, no, remember 
when we came up with it, we really laughed. Right. And so you have to keep believing yeah. that that initial laugh, you know, will get you somewhere. Because the audience is only hearing it once. once. Yes, yeah. whereas you, you've just grown sick of it. I mean, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is your writing process like? Because I was a, a huge fan of Crying for the Moon and found it in incredibly uh, moving and... Oh, uh, um, but also, I mean, uplifting in its heart and, and in her spirit, I mean, her incredible spirit. And as you say, it wasn't uh, a, a comedy per se, but it had very, very funny moments. Yes, that's true, yeah, um, yeah. How do you kind of, how do you write? Oh, yeah. I find it really difficult to write. You know, other people love writing and people, you know, all the people I really admire, like um, Alice Munro, is it Alice? Oh, yes, you're yeah. Right. Kind of, yeah. How can I, how can I not remember Alice Munro? But anyway, <laughs> she wrote while she had children at her feet. Right. She, I mean, she just wrote, she was driven to that. And I try to do that, and I used to try to write when I was on the road, when I was doing a show. I'm not a multitasker, for sure. I can only do one thing at a time, though I can do multiple things as long as I don't try to do them all at the same time. <laughs> can anybody really multitask? Isn't that just nonsense I think that it's we were... a myth. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> the, sort of the 90s myth. But um, I find it because I try to write the truth. And I remember when I was first trying to write that book, and I don't remember now what it was, but I came to some realization about myself, some hard truth about myself. And I remember going, oh, well, that's enough of that then. And I put it down. I didn't go back to trying to write the book again for years, years and years. And so it's a magical process, isn't it? So you don't really know, but you just have to stay at it is basically it, as with everything I get. Yeah. Just have to go at it and continue to go at it, set the time. You know, I got to go up to Fogo Island this year for a three-week residency and... Uh, yeah, I'm not like Alice Munro. I don't have that kind of dedication. But being on Fogo with very little else to do, with Fogo being mostly shut down, you couldn't even... Even though there was no COVID on Fogo, the big inn, the big famous yeah. inn was closed and everything. So I did manage to get started there because there really was nothing else to do. Right. So I will use any... And I know a lot of writers are like that. Mm. You think, hmm... You know, the stairs. The stairs are looking really dirty. I should go at those stairs. Like, I haven't washed down the stairs in 60 <laughs> years, but all of a sudden I think, I'm just going to give the stairs a little going over anything to avoid yeah. the process, which is too raw, I guess. Right. It's too... Because you're always sort of hauling it up out of yourself and putting it on the... But with comedy, it really helps to have a somebody with you because well, for, for, for sure. you can say something raw and then they can add the comedy to it right well that's it and that's a collaboration and you've, yeah. you've been used to collaborating your whole time yes. your whole career and then also with sketches it's all about getting it shorter as opposed to kind of doing something long form it's like how do we get as many laughs into this so do you think you kind of trained your kind of comedic brain and your creative brain to create things in this kind of pithy and summarized way and then maybe that's what makes the novel writing process trickier. well i don't find Find the I find the pithy harder. Well, yeah. And, you know, when we were doing the sixth season of Codco, we luckily stumbled upon a director. We had John Blanchard first who would go, you're in, you're out, ba-dum-bump, -bum, that's it. Eight, <laughs> you know, three beats, you're out. Yeah. David was much more our seven, eight beats. <laughs> and so I remember we were doing sketches that were 15 minutes long <laughs> by the end of Codco because I, I find the shorter 
form really hard. And you have to do it. It's like, you know, I remember writing, I'd write it a dakey down, I'd write what I wanted to say. Mm. Then I'd try to write it funny. Unless it came to me. Sometimes things just come to you. Yeah. And then I would try to... They'd go, that's really funny, but it's five and a half minutes. <laughs> you can't have five and a half minutes in a 22-minute show. Yeah. Making it shorter, and I, it would break my heart each time because I thought some of the best pieces yeah. were going. But, of course, um, you know, they say... Um, uh, what is it that they say about... Uh, editing is, uh, yeah. is the soul Keto. of wit. Yeah. Yeah, brevity being the soul of wit. Right. Yeah, I'm afraid I don't... Uh, maybe before I die, I'll get that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you make an interesting point there about the fact that when you would start these sketches, and, and especially, you know, uh, with with uh, with Marg and with all of them, I mean, the fact with Bob, with all of them, it's the fact that you would always uh, start with a very uh, intelligent opinion and then it would become funny. So would you write the serious part first and then go into the comedic side? Or? Yeah, and when we got writers, which we didn't yeah. have off the beginning in this hour is 22 minutes, mm. we only had the four of us and we did all our own writing. Then we got one writer. Right. And then I don't remember when we got a whole room full of writers. Mm. But um, that helps mm. because then they send in suggestions. But I always write, like, uh, yeah, I'm afraid I always do. Because, of course, I started out wanting to be a journalist right. and fell into theatre. Mm. Thank God. Shirley Douglas would say, oh, darling, thank God the theatre found you. <laughs> you really don't need another uh, serial killer. Uh, but, <laughs> dear, dear Shirley. Uh, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I kind of fell into the theatre and then fell into comedy. And really, that's why this hour is 22 minutes, which I created with a bunch of extraordinary mm. people in... Um, 92 or 93, I guess, was so great for me because I, even though I never actually got to be a journalist, uh, I got to play one on TV. Right. right. Yeah. And arguably, we're, we're saying far more profound and interesting things than the actual journalists were. Well, perhaps sometimes. Sometimes, anyway, yeah. well, sometimes I mean, anyway. thought provoking. Every now and again. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to start there. Like, when, when you were studying at Ryerson, was that a difficult decision to kind of to drop out and pursue comedy? And how did that decision come about? Well, when I was 18, I got a job on the CBC. I was depressed. I had failed at everything, including even, you know, working at the arcade, which was like the uh, tiger, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, it was the cheap place. And mm -hmm. I would be on the, uh, the, the, you know, go out they go while they last in our men's department, mm -hmm. uh, doing that kind of thing. And I was going to marry an American, mm. and I went down to Colorado with him, and his family really didn't like me. Of course, I drank quite a lot when I was there, which didn't really make me that charming, I have to say. <laughs> and, uh, and then I came back feeling a complete and utter... Because I wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't have the marks to really get into journalism school or anything like that. Right. So I was lying on the couch one day watching um, Coronation Street uh, in the afternoon, and it came on that they needed a summer replacement announce operator to do the show called Summer Magazine on CBC. Mm. And we, Aunt May and I lived on Henry Street, and CBC was just across the street. And I don't know what gave me the oomph to go, because yeah. I hadn't really gotten up off the couch in a month. And I went down and did it, I was so secure in the knowledge that I would never get it that I was completely relaxed and got the job. Wow. And then went on 
we, because you're English, now I, I'm beginning to sound a little English, <laughs> but, but, you know, because I have that Tourette syndrome. Yeah, so just... now I'm, you know, sounding like this. Thinking, my God, Mary Walsh, I have to get in some phony. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> We're going to start to think that all along yeah. you've been pretending to be from Newfoundland, <laughs> really. Right. But really, really, yeah. I'm from wherever you are. She but... is the queen, after all. <laughs> she is the queen. The, uh... So I got that job. Then when I was on the air, really doing a bad job, the only letter we ever got that whole summer was somebody writing to say, who is the mad giggler on from 10 to 11? You know that kind of laughing that you do when you're really nervous? And that's all I did. I was very nervous. And I had a producer called John Fleece, and they used to say, Fleece is in streets, not as in enema. And uh, he wasn't a very popular guy. (laughs) And he was always, like, yelling at me in my earphones. So anyway, Dudley Cox, who was doing some amateur work at the Arts and Culture Center, called me up and asked me if I would play this. Mm -hmm. And I said yes, because I don't know why I said yes. But anyway, I did it. Not a very good job, I have to say. You know, the queen was in the counting house, counting... It was a a little tiny play based on that, and I was the queen. Well, there we go. See, I was right all along. And and so he started this... where we would do an English farce called See How They Run at Night and The Wizard of Oz in the morning. And we all... And Bob, Robert Joy uh, and Andy Jones and myself and Diane Olson, who was one of the original CODCO members and other people, we all went out, and Tommy Sexton, of course, Mm. we all went out on a bus and we slept on gym floors and I think we got $40 a week and we travelled all around Newfoundland and we were just so in love with Andy Jones, Mm. who at that time, you know, being from Newfoundland, if you're not funny, you might as well hang yourself because your mother might not feed you (laughs) if there's somebody who's funnier. (laughs) So being funny was part of everybody's life but Andy had routines right. he did um he did you know like a hello Miss Pritchard Alfred's dead oh yes it was awful fell thousand feet to his death in the swirling tide below say anything before he went uh I believe he said god damn you mom is that what he calls you Miss Pritchard mom calm down Miss Pritchard there's a lot of others in the middle yeah. but uh, it was just like he had all this material like the Newfoundland delegation right. and uh, it was just like we were completely taken with it and in love with the whole notion. And that out of that with kind of came... With the notion of it being written and, and, and rehearsed as opposed to being No, natural... the whole notion of, of that there would be a kind of humour, like Monty Python yeah. or like Beyond the Fringe, right. that was Newfoundland. It was about Newfoundland. It was about us. Gotcha. Right. And that's what we were just gone on. And so we all went... I think Andy went to England and Bob went off to Oxford. And then we did another tour with Greg Malone, who was brilliant also. And then Greg went to Toronto to work with Theatre Pasmerai. And myself and Tommy and Diane and Tommy was only 15, wow. uh, went to Toronto, and I had gotten into Ryerson, into the theatre company there. Mm-hmm. And you weren't allowed to uh, work mm-hmm. uh, in the theatre if you were studying theatre. Wow. Because, you know... <laughs> that would make right, too much of sense. Of course, that would, be, uh, that would be so bad. <laughs> uh, but you might pick up bad habits or something. Right. So I was there, and... I was older than everybody else because it was mostly people coming out of grade 13 and I'd already worked, you know, and stuff like that. I was 21 or something, 20 or 21. And I don't know. I just found the whole thing boring, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, then 
Diane and Tommy went to Paul Thompson at Theatre Pasmarai to audition for a job. He said, here's 300 bucks, do your own thing. We all got together. We wrote the show called Caught on a Stick. Mm -hmm. At school, they said, you can't be in it. We did it. We got good reviews and stuff. They said, well, you can't be in it, so I quit. Mm -hmm. And I went to work at Lecoq Door, which was on the corner of Dundas and Young, as a waitress. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was like one of those places where you had to pay for every drink yourself at the bar and then get the money from people. So it's costing so you I, money to work I was costing you money to work. <laughs> and plus they never liked what I had on. Uh, you know, you were supposed to wear something sexy. Right. And so I went back <laughs> with my tail between my legs. And, uh, and then we came home and started, did a, a Newfoundland tour. And there was, I think it was Andy and or Greg, but I think it was Andy who said that we wanted St. John's to become the theatrical capital of North America. And so we stayed here to achieve that. Which, you know, like Buddy who set out to get to India and yeah. actually got to North America, yeah. we did get somewhere, but we didn't exactly get to where we started out to be. Well, but, but you, you, you had a plan which at the time would have seemed quite outlandish and, and, and well, I don't know if that was kind of the excitement of youth, but you, but you did achieve it. I mean, I mean, even to this day, this, this region is known as being the place that created all of these great comedians. H how did you all know that you could do this? I don't think that we did, you know. <laughs> I was talking to Andy the other day and he was saying that he and Greg had been doing, well, a lot of times just playing up, playing the Pope in, in the basement of his <laughs> thing and doing the Mass was a lot of their... <laughs> A lot of their comedy routines, not that they thought it was comedy at the time. But they were actively pursuing that even before they... And, and Tommy had done Oliver in the basement in an amateur production, right. which people still talk about to this day, right. how brilliant he was. Most of the other people had started out wanting to be stars, I guess, to some extent. Right. But it's funny, isn't it? Because our ambition was not just to be that, because if it only was that, then we would have stayed in Toronto. Yeah. And then if we'd stayed in Toronto for a while, we would have gone to LA. Mm. But we had a real commitment to Newfoundland, whether that was, you know what yeah, I mean? We but, wanted but... to build it here, because yeah. we were all born either when Newfoundland was still a country or just slightly after, so yeah. we still felt that sense of that we were our own country in in a way. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you obviously felt that emotionally, but also the material spoke to that as well. I think that was the thing that that really just made people so passionate and still does. Yeah. Is that you were doing material that was not designed to necessarily be accessible to someone in America or England or anywhere else. It was comedy about here for people here. Yes. And, and that's quite a unique thing because traditionally people are constantly trying to make their humour as broad as possible. You were trying to say this is for you. Well, of course, we were inspired by people like Monty Python. Like, mm. who, what would we know about, I mean, even uh, those old ladies who were so, or those men with the, the handkerchiefs tied around <laughs> yeah. their head. Until I went to Cornwall, you know what I mean? Until yeah. I went to Cornwall, I'd never met them, except <laughs> I believed in them utterly and absolutely because they did them. And i tell you this funny story. Um, Henry Sourfoner was one of the best comedy directors, him and John Blanchard. But anyway... He was coming to meet us. We were going to be doing uh, This Hour Has 22 Minutes. And he had seen Codco, and he didn't really like it. He thought it was over the top, that people were stereotypical and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then he came here, and he got in a taxi. And just from the taxi to the Newfoundland Hotel, he went, 
Oh, I see. They're just real people. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not an exaggeration. No, We're just no, holding up a mirror here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just our, our parents and you know our aunts and uncles and things. I find it weird that people now do uh, theater shows based on the Brady Bunch. Right. Isn't that funny, eh? That yeah. how, how quickly things change. And of course, that's because you spend a lot of your life, I suppose, that generation, whoever they were, yeah. uh, watching the Brady Bunch. And, yeah. yeah. That's no, true. So how did Codco then transition into this hour's 22 minutes? How did the process go from being able to convince, you know, national broadcasters to, to uh, get behind this thing and really push it? The, uh, there was a French company, I guess it was Radio Canada, I'm not sure, but they came just like you. And Codco, Michael Donovan, who had been producing film in Halifax, and um, you know those structures that the Canadian government put in place, like the National Film Board. They had a very, very vibrant National Film Board in in Halifax. Oh, and you yeah. notice that a lot of you know, and a lot of film, you know, came out of there, yeah. right? But uh, Michael came and we had stopped being a theatrical company. We'd gone on to do... And in fact, Tommy and Greg had done a national TV show called The Sexton and Malone comic book. Right. Yeah. And we had done The Wonderful Grand Band. Yeah. They, they, again, Tommy and Greg and Kathy and I joined after. And we were busily working away and he came and said, and I think it must have been a Van Fitzans thing because he also had kids in the hall doing a sketch comedy show at the same time as we were doing a sketch comedy show and then when we did this hour is 22 minutes he also had um the royal canadian air force doing another very yeah it's like a canadian comedy yeah it's like a twosome he always went with a twosome (laughs) but anyway so michael got the people from SCTV, John Blanchard, Bev Sheckman, Judy Cooper Seeley, Jules Hall, Jules Hallmeyer, all the brilliant people who had done all the brilliant background work, the director, hair and makeup, costume, lighting. You know, he got all that crowd into the Halifax studio to create Codco. So we started off with, you know, we were new to TV. Yeah. Well, not actually new because we'd done a couple, but yeah. we had a great team, yeah. right? An Extraordinary team. And all with similar comedic sensibilities and mindsets, and you all knew what you were doing. The Codco people? Yeah. Uh, well, we had been through the ringer with, you know, we'd done a couple of national tours and a yeah. couple of, we went down to Philadelphia for the 1976, um, you know, for the bicentennial, and we'd gone to England and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so and so we'd you, been you, together. You'd yeah. really, you, you got to know each other and you really fine tuned what you do. I guess so, right? We got back together again to do television. Mm -hmm. And I think that having that team with us Mm -hmm. made an enormous difference because our production values were a little higher than perhaps they would have been had we started off without a team that had just come out of winning an Emmy. Most of them had won Emmys with SCTV, right? So... We were good, and then they gave us uh, all the trappings around it. I mean, I guess we were good, but anyway, you know, we were. uh, uh, Because I'm just saying that about everybody else. Uh, (laughs) But um, And so we went on there for a long time, and then we finally couldn't take working with each other anymore because you'll find with um, comedy teams, they... uh, it's just too hard. <laughs> right. 
you're too young when you start off and it's just too heartbreaking all the time and you yeah. know and so we finally stopped what, and what specifically what kind of things was it actual clashing or just having too much of each other and being around each other oh, so much? we clashed all the time we had terrible fights about everything i remember andy so good like we would always fight about how much time we had on stage like who was getting on stage more right. and with the tv series there was a huge hoorah about who was getting on so andy had said well let's do it a according to a kind of list, okay? So if you got a leading role, you get three points. If you're just a second, you get two points. And if you're just an extra in the sketch, you get one point. <laughs> and then we'll keep it even. So everybody will have 33. Okay, so everybody says, okay. So counting up the roles. And then I remember, I don't know if it was me or somebody said, yeah, yeah, but all my 33s are just ones. <laughs> you know, like, this is not right. And That's amazing. So we were constantly trying to find a formula to keep each other happy. Um, this sounds just like on the Fast and Furious franchise. Vin Diesel, The Rock, and Jason Statham have a rule that they can't be hit more times than the <laughs> other one. So they have someone sat there counting punches. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't, I don't want to look like a wimp, so I can't be hit more times than The Rock. I never heard it's, that yeah, before. <laughs> so, and, and I guess, was there also the issue of like who's getting the best lines and the biggest oh, yes. laughs? Well, but of course, we wrote together, yeah. you know, and people were, and I make it sound like we were all very mean but you know no, we were very generous with things like you know giving each other roles you know like I remember Greg Malone did um, Betty Anderson he had written this you know Betty Anderson wins an Oscar Betty Anderson was fa from Father Knows Best yeah. which is a show you know and she was the teenage girl and and so you sit in the audience in a ball gown and you have a little thing of blood in your hand a little blood ball and you trip up on your way out and there's just a little tiny bit of blood by the time you get to the stage you're covered <laughs> in blood and you want the Oscar you you know, like, and they're horrified. And, and that was Greg's role, and he gave it to me. And I must say, I enjoyed doing that every time I did it. I loved it. Played havoc on my back, because I really didn't stay at theater school long enough to find out how to fall. So I used to actually have to fall each time. Do it for real. Uh, but no, people were very generous, too. And uh, people use improvisation as an end in itself, which I always find really, <laughs> like... We used improvisation, and then we'd improvise it again, and then we'd improvise it again, then we'd listen to the tapes, and then we'd take the best lines yeah. out of, you know, and then we'd improvise it again, and then we'd write it, depending on the improvisation, mostly. Wow. Some things people went home and wrote, you know. Yeah. I remember writing Black Irish Mary here by myself, but... Um, there's a real science to it. You were really, I mean, you were quite literally working this out like a scientific formula, like, like in working what works. It yeah. wasn't just kind of like, let's see, you know, you would see what works and then utilise that based on the, the actual reaction. Well, we'd listen to the tapes and, if, and yeah. if the tapes, if anything on the tapes made us laugh, we would write right. it down, right? Uh, and so, because it's hard when you're all improvising together to know what's working and what isn't, yeah. right? But then when you have the, you're distant enough from it and so we just do it over and over and over and over again, right? Wow. That's incredible. I mean, there's such a science to it. People don't realise quite how much work goes into <laughs> creating something which ultimately people enjoy and think, oh, that's funny, that's silly. They don't realise how much serious groundwork that goes into creating yeah, Let alone that. the heartbreak of not having your funny line. And, right. of course, as a woman in comedy, you know, you'd say a line and then a guy would say, the guy sitting next to you would say it. No, the, the, you could hear whatever it is that you hear when it's silent. Yeah. And then the guy would say it and, and then everybody would laugh uproariously right. because, uh, you know, women aren't funny. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously, obviously. But, um... <laughs> 
It's an interesting mindset. Like, do you find that, like, when a show would go well, people expect there to be a kind of a lot of high fives on the rest of it, but actually you just kind of go, well, that's good, that was what we meant to do. Yes. But then when it goes badly, it's a crushing, just devastating... And we were so bad and so young. People would come back after a bad show and say, oh, that was great, because they would have a good time, and we'd go, no, it wasn't great. That was the worst piece of garbage, you know. Right. And be really... People would, like, back out of the dressing room, yeah. like, kind of... But, yeah, no, absolutely. If it doesn't, uh, you know, you, you just go, yeah, that's good. That's good, it worked. Yeah. And, uh, and then if it doesn't work... But yeah, I think we can change that. I'm not... I haven't been able to, but I think that is just... We make that decision, don't we, to only listen to the... Like, I can tell you every bad review. And I've been surprised, like, when I went through my Aunt May's stuff, she saved things from Philadelphia where a guy was... His name was Walter Herring, and he was <laughs> reviewing Codco. So it was a very fishy thing. But he had given me particularly a really good review. He had picked me out and give me a really good review. And, you know, I had no memory of that until I found it in Aunt May's stuff. Right. But, of course, everything not good that was said, I just... Yeah. You know, so I think we can change that. I yeah. definitely think we can change that. I haven't been able to yet, but, you know... When you find out, tell me, because I think that's the curse of comedians everywhere, that you yeah. could, yeah, and it's the same thing like now. You could receive 100 nice emails of people saying lovely things, and you, none of it registers. It doesn't even go in. You no. Just, and then one nasty one, and I'll read it 100 times and still wake up thinking childhood about it. Childhood trauma, Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it that's all comes that's, down to yeah, childhood trauma. Yeah, 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 yeah. This show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. I mean, and you mentioned, obviously, you know, being a woman in comedy at a time, of course, when it was even harder than it is now. And even now, of course, we still have a very long way to go and female comedians are still being patronised when they come off stage by male audience members saying, you know, I don't normally like female comedians, but I like to, and all these stupid, stupid things that... Yes, as women still... as object, as opposed to... And, it, and we see ourselves that way because we've always been brought up that way. Yeah. So as we get older, at last, we stop trying to be the object of somebody else's desire right. and start to become the subject of our own lives. Right. Which is such a relief. But as a young woman, that's why I always played old women. Mm. Because you could get to be yourself somehow. Whereas as a young woman, you're always trying to be something. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. And so it's funny, hard to be funny. Well, no, but it's, but it's true. You, you can see it. that The male gaze almost disallows a female comedian to look good while she's being funny. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But because yeah. suddenly... But again, I mean, that's solely a problem with patriarchy and not anything to do with, of course, comedy or indeed the majority of the audience or indeed, you know, anyone. Yeah. For you at that time, I mean, essentially pioneering as a female comedian before there was even kind of conversation about it. But you have to remember, I grew up watching Mary Tyler Moore with yeah. Betty White, mm. Cloris Leachman, like yeah. the funniest stuff on TV. Yeah. Uh, Carol Burnett was on when I was growing up. Yeah. Phyllis Diller. People go, oh, this is a brand new age of... But, you know, it's not like we just came fresh <laughs> yeah. from the womb this second. Women have been yeah. around forever. It's right. like people are going, women, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. Let's use some women. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, I grew up 
watching TV yeah. where there were women who were funny. Right. And my mother was terribly funny. Mm. <laughs> like, my mother had that kind of ancient kind of way where she could have as much fun poking fun at a two-year-old as she would at a 40-year-old. You know what I mean? Yeah, you were yeah. just as much the object of her derision yeah. at two as you were at 40. So I don't think I felt that I was... And, of course... Let's not forget Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara, right. who were on just yes, before yeah. us, right? Yeah. But it really was a man's... I know, uh, but I'm just trying to say that yes, it wasn't like I was a... I didn't feel like I was a pioneer. What really was pioneering, I think, is like you say, Andy and Greg and Bob and Tommy, who were the four male members of CODCO, and then there was me and Diane and Kathy, and the men were allowed to be competitive and it was outward and they did it and there was no shame. But we were highly competitive too, but we were so ashamed of it. (laughs) We're always trying to pretend that we weren't, you know, going. And so you would have to play these little games like, oh, that's really good what Kathy's doing, but maybe it'll be, you know what I mean? Like as opposed to going, you know, I want to be part of that, right? Which Mm -hmm. the boys seem to have that, that freedom. Right. To like in men, competition yeah. is seen as being good. Drive. I had a lot of drive. Yeah. Sometimes without any w- notion of where to put it, you know. But I did have a lot of drive. Yeah. Where do you think that drive came from? Given you know it wasn't something that necessarily came naturally to people. Ah, you know, my brother said to me the other day, he's retired now, but he was an ironworker, like, you know, he went up on those 100-storey buildings. Oh, wow, like those classic photographs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so my grandfather on my mother's side, he had gone to New York and he worked on the um, Empire State Building and then my brothers worked on the, the World Trade. So there was that in our family. And I said something to my brother the other day about being ambitious and stuff like that. He said, yeah, I always wanted to be the best ironworker, you know what I mean, that there was. And so I guess some families just have it. Like, I have a friend who says, I don't want to be the best. I just want to do a good job. You know, I just want to fit in. I want to fit in. And I want to fit in too, of course, really desperately. But there's another thing tugging all the time. But the indigenous people of this country have a first among equals. And that's what I've always wanted to be. (laughs) Like, you always want to be with the crowd, with the gang, and yet, you know, be really fun, be people going, well, she's the funniest. You know what I mean? Like, and you can't, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work, right? It's like you're pulling in two directions at the same time, right? Yeah, you can be the, you're the first among you. If anyone's earned that right, you have. (laughs) (laughs) It's very interesting because, as you say, some people have the drive um, just in general, in life, just, yeah. just just for all things. But then some people have very specific drives. And as you say, yours, yeah. yours is a very specific drive. Mine what, wasn't a specific. No. Like, Tommy wanted to be... He could sing, dance and act. And, and that's what he wanted. And he mm. wanted to be... But I wanted to be a journalist, I right. think. Or I don't know what I wanted. I just wanted to be good yeah. at something. You know what I mean? Job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But that's... Yeah, I wanted to be able to tick that box. You know, and uh, so when I first got in Caught on a Stick, you know, and I had gone back to work there, I had acted a little before, like in the amateur thing here, but it was our material, like we had written it all, and they came out of stories from our childhood and things like that, and I didn't have any confidence in the material. So I used to mostly act 
towards the back of the stage, that horrible way of like going, I'm not really here. <laughs> like they're all here, I'm not really here. I'm with ye if you don't like it, you know. And, uh, and I remember Andy came from England to Twillingate, staying at the school in Twillingate, doing Card on a Stick. And he came to see the show and he spent, I don't know how many mornings with me, helping me to have confidence in the material. Wow. You know, just spending that time, and I'm not very good at being directed, uh, so it was a really big, big sacrifice for him. <laughs> and, um, and then after, when we did Sickness, Death and Beyond the Grave, mm. I was really wanted to get on there, right? Really yeah. uh, was fighting for my place. But in Cod on a Stick, I was still very, very... Until I got that help from Andy. Interesting. I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's all help from other people, isn't it? Yeah, well, you it's know? all collaboration, of course. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and support and all the rest of it. And one thing you mentioned there, I mean, I love the fact that, that the humour... Um, that you've done since the very beginning has always had, uh, you know, politically sound messages behind it, whether it be environmental issues, uh, political issues, social issues. Yeah. And, and in recent years, you've obviously become far more, uh, e even more vocal and outspoken in supporting human rights issues. Um, wh why is that so important to you? And how um, do you find it using your voice to kind of make those things known about? I don't know, you know, I'm from the working class and my father was very proud of being a working man. And I don't know, you know, why, but I, I feel like, you know, sometimes uh, my brothers and sisters who aren't in the same business, and sometimes they sound like they could be Trump supporters or something, you know, the things that they say, <laughs> but that's never how they are. They are always in support of justice and they want people to have a fair shake like you know and it often gets in our way because things aren't fair are they yeah. and and we've often spent a lot of time soaking as we say about how unfair thing I mean I've wasted a lot of time at that uh, but right. yeah so I think that uh, somehow or other and mom too I guess in our family generally there was that kind of bad-tempered working-class notion that, you know, things had better straighten out and that, you know, the people in charge and don't take orders from anyone and who put the fucking boss's cap on you? Right. Uh, you know, like... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that must have given you the confidence to perform some of your sketches. I mean, especially like, you know, having the audacity to kind of French kiss uh, a sitting prime I minister. I didn't French kiss oh, him. Well, sorry, I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to put a it's tongue in It's all bad enough. Yeah, it's, it's all bad enough. But, but, but the, 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 the absolute kind of confidence it takes to... That must come from that kind of not necessarily anti-authority idea, but the concept of what makes you think you can tell everyone what to do, especially when they're doing bad things. I know, and I never thought that I could. I thought Marg could. Mm, do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. And Marg is a different person than me. She's an older woman. She's got a lot more experience. Yeah. She's a lot more comfortable in the world, and all she's doing is trying to help them <laughs> to get to where they need to go. I realized that very soon as I was playing Marg, and you're so close to people, mm. you always have to play it from the helping 
angle. Even when you're saying the worst things, yeah. it's like, I'm just here, and I'm telling you, you can't keep on going, hating everything. You've got to love something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm here to help you out, So right? they can't react in any other way than a kind of a, a, a positive way. They can't walk away because I she's trying know. to help. I don't know, I didn't think that. It's just impossible as a human being to be that close to someone, right. even if you feel that they are possibly deeply evil, mm. but I'm sure Mr. Harper isn't deeply evil, but possibly amoral, amoral. <laughs> uh, but it's impossible to be that close to another human being without... Uh, and, and say things to them that you only mean... I mean, I had to honestly do it. I wasn't pretending. Yeah. I had to honestly feel, as Marg, yeah. that I was there like their older aunt yeah. to give them a bit of advice, and that made it possible. And, of course, the other thing is just shame, which I learned, you know, in school and at, at home. It's just like I was there in that stupid costume with the red felt stuff on and the gold glue and, and the plastic sword, and everybody else had their Burberries on, and they had their expensive briefcases and stuff when we were, you know, when there was uh, whatever those things are called when you go around the prime minister, and right. we'd wait till the end, and I would just be mortified. Like, and then I'd just be so low, I'd think, well, shag it, what have I got to lose? I'm already, <laughs> look at me, you know what I mean? And so when a couple of times I tried to do, there was a character I played on the desk, and I tried to do that, and I tried to be all done up in my hair perfect and a lovely suit on and stuff like that, and we, I ambushed Gwyn Dyer, and he went blah, 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 and I was absolutely stopped right. in my tracks, you know, yeah. because I was trying to be all perfect, whereas Marg was so, you know, with the... Yeah. ...imperfect that she really, you couldn't, you know, embarrass her or, you know what I mean, because she'd already been, she's already at the bottom. Yeah. Where is she going to go? Is the, which is the very definition of great comedy is being able to, you know, it's, there's no vanity there. Yes, but, exactly. Um, I'm fascinated by the, because the performance process for any performer when they walk out on stage, it's that thing when you're behind the curtain and the fear is, what if I don't switch into stage me? How do you do that when you are in a room full of people wearing burpee coats, you're in the costume, you're there as yourself, but you know you need to get into my how would you do that? It, like, mentally? Well, I'd be there. Sometimes I'd be in the toilet at Queen's Park, mm. hiding from the security, standing on the toilet as Mark. And so that was interesting when Mike Harris was there because we had to sneak in and not be there for the scrum and just come in at the very end, right? And so really when I was crouched on the toilet in Queen's Park, really I'd just be going over my lines, over my lines, over my lines, because my great fear was because you only have one shot. Yeah. It's not like you can do it again and again, like, we could redo this even if yeah. we wanted to. But if you're doing a, an ambush, you only have one shot, right? Yeah, they're not going <laughs> to invite you back to do ambush them again. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but, see, nobody wants to go through it again anyway, and neither do you. And th there was that feeling, wasn't there? You could feel that through the TV, that this was a one-off, that it really was an ambush. And Palpable tension yes, in it. And, yeah. and, 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 it's, and it's, it's hilarious because literally you feel like anything can happen. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know, I know. Terrifying, just terrifying. People would say, you must have had some fun. I go, oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. No, but I've, I was driven on to do it. I didn't, I don't remember having any fun. The genius of the character was was that you could get people to react in all of those different ways. And ultimately, of course, the, the, the ultimate goal, which was always to make people at home laugh, which, of course, succeeded in spades. But yeah. how do you create a character like that? 
Well, you know, Marg existed on radio. It's funny, isn't it? Because things often do that, don't they? Come through that sort of thing. I know the BBC does it all the time. When Kim Campbell, who I have a funny story to tell you about Kim Campbell too. When Kim Campbell was running for prime minister, I was here in St. John's. We weren't doing, we were between Codco and stuff. And we caught in Codco, we'd all played Margs. Tommy had had this character, Marg at the Mental, and he played her. And then we all dressed up as Margs. And every time we did men and women, we'd be Marg and Jerry. And so the, all the fellas were Jerry and all the women were Margs. So I had this Marg, and then my Aunt May had a friend named Marg Delahunty. And Delahunty seemed like such a, an exotic name to a Walsh or a Murphy or a White, you know, the names that are familiar here. <laughs> and so I decided to call my character Marg Delahunty. I went on the radio, and I ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party against Kim, right? <laughs> so I already had that yeah. and then when we started this hour is 22 minutes I went in the hospital for back surgery and so I did my first mark from bed and I wore a house because my sister lol never gets dressed mm-hmm. like long the pandemic has been great for lol she says <laughs> all her gold jewelry on she never and then she just has her you know house coat on Amazing. and so I did that with Marg and then you know the Warrior, she's... Zena. Zena, yeah. Yeah, and and I had my bangs cut like that. And I said to Jeff Dion, you know, I should do... Well, just by coincidence, you had the bangs cut like that. Wow. You didn't go in asking for... I look just like her. You didn't go in asking for Zena. No, no, no. I just, by coincidence, I remember Greg Toomey saying, are you trying to look unattractive? (laughs) Because I also had big round glasses at the time. I thought, you know, I'm not trying to look unattractive, but I'm trying to look something like close to who I am and not neither attractive nor unattractive. (laughs) But anyway, um, um, it didn't occur to me to have that answer. I had no answer for Greg. I was just thrown back. So I said to Jeff, I should play her. We should do a send-up of the show. And he said, I don't know how he put it now, but he kind of said, why don't you do her when we go to Ottawa, you know? And I remember Rick saying after, when we were in Kandahar uh, at a thing, Rick said, well, after she went with the, you know, because he used to ambush people too. He he said, well, that was it. Then uh, my ambush was over. After your aunt in the funny costume comes up and does it, you know, you can't. Um, But yeah, and so then we did that. And then that worked. It, uh, it really worked really well. So I think that that's how it came about. I already had Marg, but she didn't have that costume. And then I was trying to do a send-up of the show, and then Jeff said, well, why don't we, you know? And I went, well, why isn't Marg? Because I kind of liked Marg. Yeah. Because I felt quite comfortable in Marg. And I feel quite comfortable in Mrs. Zena, too. And, of course, <laughs> Dakey Dunn, I feel quite good in him. So, you know what I mean? I feel... So you're saying, where did you get the confidence to say these things? But I never... And I still find it really hard these days for me, Mary Walsh, to say those things. But I don't find it hard for Dake or Mrs. Uh, Eulalia or Marg to say them. Yeah. I find it much easier... To be like, it seems like they have a right. They do have a right, and also you were always punching up, which is the yeah. important thing, right? And it's one of those things where it frustrates me that as comedians, we're not allowed to say now that we don't like any 
forms of comedy. And, and again, I mean, it's not necessarily... I don't think any comedy should be banned, but equally, I don't like any mean-spirited comedy. And yet, everything you've always done has always been aiming towards those in power. It's never been... Because the nuns always punched down. Right. And always sucked up. Yeah. So trying to be the absolute opposite of the nuns... <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, this hour is 22 minutes. I think it was Michael's idea to call it that. Uh, but it was named after a very famous CBC show called This Hour has seven days and that changed things that was a show that there were a couple of things that the canadian government changed because of things that were found out on this hour of seven days so it was a big thing to leap to right yeah well things can make a difference and i've seen i mean i've seen marg's videos for environmentalism those can bring about change well we hope keep our fingers crossed Yeah. yeah 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 So how did This Hour's 22 Minutes get to air? And then when did you know that it was going to be such a huge success? Well, I was sort of not running. Uh, Running would be the wrong word. I was the artistic animator of a community-run theatre here called the LSPU Hall. And I thought on Friday nights we should do a news show, you know, where we do the news of the week. uh, And, uh, you know, because everybody... We were a very active community. And then I thought, because we'd done Codco with Michael... I was going up to Halifax for something, and I remember I sat down in a Czechoslovakian restaurant with Michael Donovan, and I said, I had this idea that I want to do this show that's like the news, and we just make fun of the news, and we make fun of how the news... I had the idea that we'd do all these different sets. We'd make fun of how the news is done. We'd make fun of the news readers, and we'd also make fun of the news, right? Mm. That was my idea. And he said, isn't that interesting? Because that's what CBC is looking for, something just like that now. And then I said, I think I'd already asked. I'd gone to Kathy, and she said, look, I'm not even interested in the news. It makes me depressed. (laughs) And I went, that will be great, because you'll bring a whole other thing to it. (laughs) And I went to Andy, who said yes at first, and then said no, he didn't want to do a weekly show, Andy Jones. And then I went to Greg Toomey, and Toomey said yes, and then I went to Rick Mercer, and he and Gerald Lunds had just done a show about somebody, child someone, who had said some bad things about Newfoundlanders, and they'd had enormous success, and they'd travel across the country, and it was a one-man show, and Rick was brilliant. It was a young, brilliant man coming up through, and I asked him if he would do it, and, uh, you know, they just lived over there. We were friends. Gerald had been our PA on Codco. And I went over one day, and Gerald said, if I could be the creative director. And I wanted to be the creative director, uh, creative producer. I wanted to be the creative producer, but I didn't have the guts to kind of say what I wanted. Like, I was always afraid to say what I wanted. I don't know why. And I said, yes, of course, because really I didn't really believe we'd ever get it. <laughs> and, and so then I went to Michael and I told him all the people who were on board and, you know, and he started it. And then myself and Toomey went to uh, Montreal to the big festival right. and we met uh, the people from... Uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and we went, we're doing an homage to you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, oh, I remember I was doing Moon for the Misbegotten in London, Ontario, and I was playing the woman who's on stage for nine and a half hours. And we weren't ready, and I was doing it with Colin Fior, and I had a terrible, terrible crush on Colin Fior. I couldn't be in the same room with him. I don't know why. I'd just given up drinking, so I guess I needed something else to focus on. And then Martha Henry was directing, and Michael was meeting with the 
CBC with George Anthony, who was the person then in Toronto. And I said, I've, I was in London, Ontario. I said, I've got to go up on the train. I've got to meet with them. She said, you can't go. And I said, well, then I quit, you know, even though we were a week from opening. Uh, <laughs> because I somehow knew, you know, sometimes you know. Yeah, I went, I have to do this. I have to do this. This is going to be... And so, but Martha was very good, of course, and she just said, yes, of course, you know, and then I had to apologize for threatening her, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it started, and I, I went in the hospital almost immediately to have back surgery. So I watched the first show of This Hour is 22 Minutes from my bed, and then by the time I came back, things weren't going the way I really wanted them to go. So I spent a year of, you know, the grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change the things I can. Not in any way changing the things I could, but desperately trying to change the things I couldn't. Luckily, smarter brains than mine were afoot. And when I was in the hospital, they changed it from us being the performers, writers, and producers mm. to us just being the performers and writers. And then there would be... A, other people in charge of making the decision. Less crap to worry about when I mean, you can focus on the job at hand. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and less tension to somebody else who's making the decision. Like, right. Kathy wasn't making the decision about my material and I wasn't making the decision about hers. Somebody Smart. else was, so then, right? And again, that must oh, diffuse. What a relief. Yeah. And But, of course, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and so I fought, and, you know, it was very difficult to lead the rebellious charge with no one behind me, because everybody else was already pretty happy with the way things were. Right. And they were right. And uh, no, I was quite wrong about that. I mean, oh. I don't think... We couldn't have gone on. Mm. We couldn't have done a weekly show. On Monday, we had nothing. On Friday, we did a live show. And on Monday night, it was on the air. Yeah. So, That's you know, crazy. it was thanks be to God, things changed. And, uh, and th we did six at first, and then they immediately wanted six more. And so we knew that it was, um, you know... Yeah. 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 And I mean, did, could you ever have imagined then that it was, or maybe with the youthful arrogance you did, but but could you have imagined then that it would still be such a huge success now and still and still? No, I I left year twelve, mm. which seemed immensely long to me. Right. And I remember saying to someone else, uh, I was I was on the Republic of Doyle, I guess, and they were very worried about something. And I said, Oh, relax. It all works itself out by season nine, right? <laughs> and they went, yeah, if we ever get to season nine. Yeah. And so, like, I remember Sherry White saying to me once, because after this hour is 22 minutes, I did Hatching, Matching, and Dispatching and Young Triffy, neither of which was the kind of success that this hour was. And so it was like I could get a meeting with anyone, but I couldn't ever get anything on the go. I couldn't... Right. And, uh, and that's so frustrating, Sherry, all the oh, talk. talk it's yeah. very, yeah. And Sherry said... You're just going through, shut up. <laughs> She's very straightforward. You're just going through what everybody else went through at the beginning, because I had a really easy go, though I didn't emotionally feel I did, but I had a very easy go at the beginning because right. we were popular. Whatever we hit that zeitgeist, right? Mm. What we were saying was what people wanted to hear right from caught on a stick. And so we happened... I remember Rex Murphy said... He used to be here on our local set. And he said, uh, you know, if, if these people hadn't come up with Codco, it would have happened anyway because it was just that time. And then he was saying that uh, that it was good. Our scripts were good. It was... 
I don't remember, something about sewage and stuff like that. He wasn't very... <laughs> and then we did a whole big thing about, you know, I see that you have quite bad acne. Uh, yes, yes, I do. Did Rex Murphy have anything to do with that? <laughs> yes, Rex Murphy is completely responsible. <laughs> but it, we, we nice, just... It was yeah. such fun. Uh, but, yeah, so, uh, you know, maybe he was somewhat right that the times were very propitious for us what people put up with. What you do know, you think it was about your upbringing that kind of gave you your comedic sensibility? Well, like I said, everybody in my family is funny. Like my brother Greg, who's my baby brother, who's... Oh, my God, he's so old now. Uh, he is really funny, like, really, really funny. I, I, there's no getting around it. And everybody has a really... Even the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren have a way of looking at things, which I would say that Newfoundlanders do have that kind of comedic, skewed way of looking at things. So I got that. I just was born, luckily enough, born into it. I was the unfunniest. Like, I didn't grow up with my family. I grew up with my... I grew up next door with my maiden, two maiden aunts. Oh, actually, one maiden aunt, an, an aunt who had been married and whose husband died. They were just married a year. And with my uncle. Mm. <clears throat> and they lived at number nine, Carter's Hill. And my family, until I was 11, lived at number seven. So it was weird. Yeah. It was just weird. There was a lot of chaos with my... Well, there would be anyway because there was all those people who lived there. And then there was a lot of chaos at number seven and there was a lot of quiet at number nine because Uncle Jack had nine strokes and Fiend had a heart condition and May had lost her leg when she was four and had lots of... Uh, there were health issues and sickness and the priest was always coming, giving extreme unction. It was always extraordinarily quiet. And downstairs it was always, you know, erupting with the people being brought home in the Black Mariah or being taken away in the Black Mariah or fire trucks ending up. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. woo! And then when I was 11, they moved around the bay to Mom's mother's house. And then I actually... Mom and Dad came and got me when I was about 12 and I went and spent a, a week there. And it was, it was a big change in my life because... I guess, <laughs> even though now looking at it, and it's easy when you're 68 to see that one of the things that you think could have been the thing that destroyed you, that made you really, really unhappy, that uh, was actually a thing that actually gave you everything, that our life is our life, and mm -hmm. there you go. I had actually had more mothers than most people, you know, as opposed to... But I really wanted my mother, you know what I mean? And I wanted her to want me. So I always... And Aunt May was wonderful, and uh, she was a very loving and kind person. But funny, too, but not funny in any kind of, uh, you know, taking the piss kind of way. But I always felt like somehow or other she was in my way of getting what I really wanted, which was mom mm. and dad, of course, too, mm. in a less way. So um, I don't know. When I was 12, they, <clears throat> I went up and stayed with them. And then I, from being the f nun's favorite, because, you know, having been brought up by two old ladies and an older man, I was, what is that word that begins with a P that is not promiscuous, it's the other one? Uh, um, you know, where you're always saying things that are much older than you. Um, um, 
prim and proper, pretentious. No, uh, I don't know. not pretentious. Uh, um, d- 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 precocious. Precocious, precocious. precocious. Yeah. precocious the, the, all yeah. the nuns liked me and everything because I was quite precocious <laughs> and things. And, and so I was always asked to give the... When the teachers came, I gave the speech and I was the, our principal's favourite and I was also our teacher's favourite, you know. And, uh, you know, she used to take me out after for, you know, to get cream pie and stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, it was pretty good and I was that kind of good girl and I always came, you know, in the top five or something. And, and then when I went and spent that couple of weeks with my family, I became a different person and I just went off the rails a bit. I'm not blaming my family, but I wanted to be with them. You know, they were my real family. That's what I wanted to be like. I didn't want to be like Miss Precocious and Goody Two yeah, shoes. you wanted to embrace the chaos. I wanted to embrace the chaos <laughs> as best I could to get in with them, you know, yeah. which didn't work, of course. But anyway, never mind. So then I went down a road that, you know, lots of people go down like that kind of, you know, drinking and smoking and getting in with a hard crowd and stuff. But they don't all stay on it. But I, unfortunately, on both sides of our family, we have the disease of addiction and alcoholism and it just goes on and on and on and on. Though I do have a brother who got sober when mom died on the day that mom was buried, my brother got sober and his family seems to be fine. Right. You know what I mean? None of them are suffering the they seem to be really they're like they came from father knows best. All the girls are like <laughs> Betty Anderson and but uh but it's really good. But so that um I had that disease. Yeah. Were you functioning alcoholic or were you uh kind of a chaos alcoholic? Well, you know, I I guess I was a functioning alcoholic uh, because I kept working and stuff like that. I hadn't gotten to that other place yet, as they often say, people who talk about alcoholism. I hadn't lost my job yet. I hadn't lost my family yet. It was all in the post. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, you know, luckily, Mm. I got sober. And... uh, had and you, you know, had you known for a while that it was a problem? Oh my or, God! Or you, yes, yeah, I, I it, knew, I knew that it was a problem, but there didn't seem to be any choice, right. which is the big thing that you learn when you get sober is that there is always a choice. Right. It might be the wrong choice, it might be the best choice, but there is a choice. Whereas I felt I had no choice; it seemed to be the only option open to me. Right? right? That drinking thing—that was my best friend and my my favorite companion—and yeah. yet it was killing me, you know, and and making everything dark and ugly. It was like being in a dark hole and keeping on digging because mm. you thought this was the way out. Whereas if you just looked up for two seconds, you could see, right. you know, that there was a way out. And I didn't know that, and I finally realized that. Or I didn't realize it. it. Took years to kind of, but I did begin to see a slight light at the end of the tunnel. Wow. You know. Now, yeah. Can you describe the moment that you started to really see the light when you when you got sober and realized that that you'd been kind of ignoring this this. Uh, it's option. been very very. I'm a very slow learner, so it's been very very like my son was three on the day that I decided to stop drinking. And it was the saddest, one of the saddest days of my life. And yet within months, when I was going to bed at night with a pot of tea and, and my son was asleep in the next room, 
and the extraordinary joy that I would feel knowing that I was there, that I was actually there, and I had no idea of the amount of guilt that I'd been carrying around all this time. Sometimes you don't know the weight that you're carrying until it's gone, and it was like a rising up. Like, at least I was... And that was the beginning, but at least I was there. I was there. I wasn't somewhere else, because I had always drunk from the very beginning, not in any kind of social way, but to disappear, right. to, you know, right? Like, people say they don't have blackout drunks till they're, you know, drinking for 20 years. First time I ever got drunk, I blacked out, right? Uh -huh. And then I was chasing that. Yeah. <laughs> I was chasing that glorious disappearance. <laughs> the glorious disappearance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So that sorry. realization when you were, no, it's, it's, well, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing in that moment that you realize that not only are you present in the moment, but also you're going to be present in the morning. Yes, and yeah. that if anything goes wrong, mm. I'm here to take care of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful moment. Yeah. And it must yeah. have. Uh, must have kind of changed the way that you you were as a mother and and enjoyed those those years because those are I mean those are the best years three yes. onwards. But yeah. then I became a workaholic after that because <laughs> right. I thought, what am I going to do? Yeah. I have nothing in my life. That's yeah. a better aholic to it's be there. It's going to be a But still, it's hard on yes. people around you, right? Yeah. Because you are singularly focused and you become. You know, it's not easy. All those aholisms are escapes from real life. And to be able to embrace life as it actually is, that's what we're all doing here, right? Yeah. And so we try a lot of stuff to get out. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, this dank, dark hole I've been digging for myself, it's actually quite glorious out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need to be down here. I can be out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, um, this has been such a joy, and all I can say is, you, I mean, you may have not made the cover of Time magazine, but <laughs> I do have the proof that you are the queen of comedy because it says it right here. Oh, God. In the Maritime <laughs> Edit. That's, that's an absolute fact, queen of comedy. And uh, I do hope that you will um, honour me by signing some of my oh, uh, yes. merchandise. Well, we haven't touched upon my, my one of my favourite uh, oh. movies of yours, Geraldine's Fortune, oh, oh. because which I, I adore. Um, and also, living in St John, everyone claims that they worked in Sobeys at the time when you filmed this. I have, this is like the Sex Pistols gig in 77 everyone claims to be at. Oh, right. I've met 500 people, all of whom claim they were with Mary Walsh in Sobeys. <laughs> um, I have no idea, but I hope you will sign this and my uh, original Codco VHS for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> this is fabulous. Oh, this is the, this is the yeah. only one we had with Pleasant Irish Priests yes, on it. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, the only one yeah. that's allowed swearing in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 the show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. And be sure to follow Mary on Twitter at MaryWalsh11 and Instagram at OfficialMaryWalsh and check out her website at MaryWalsh.ca. Further details can be found on the edit website maritimeedit.com and I will see you next time.
Podstarter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 